Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. Uh, Good Friday morning to you all. I have an update on the headlines related to Cuba that we have been discussing all week. Uh, Cuba is temporarily lifting restrictions on those seeking to bring food, medicine, and hygiene items into the country. This is an apparent response to uh, government protests. I will describe it that way. Protests against communism, pro-democracy protests that have uh, been ongoing since last weekend. Thousands of people have gathered to protest the shortages of very basic goods. And if you uh, have been listening to what Senator, uh, Florida Senator Marco Rubio has been saying, which, you know, let's just remember his parents are first generation immigrants from Cuba, and he is very connected to the Cuban community, the expatriate Cuban community, uh, specifically in the state of Florida. If you're listening to him, and I would recommend you listen to him on this topic, um, You're just going to recognize the really straightforward approach that people who are intimately familiar with the situation in Cuba, um, what they have in mind in terms of the United States dealing with the failed communist state of Cuba. So um, uh, I would say uh, on the good news front of this, it does appear that the president of the United States is now looking into ways to reinstate Internet access in Cuba, something that we can actually do from our base there at Guantanamo Bay. So uh, look forward to maybe that happening over this weekend. The U.S. Senate voted unanimously yesterday to pass a bill banning the import of products from China's um, uh, Xinjiang province or region. You will recognize that we have been talking about the ongoing genocide taking place there against the Uyghur people. And so um, just note that on that human rights and religious freedom front, there is some progress being made. Uh, Let's see. Anything else here that's topping the news that I think you might want to know this morning? Um, Uh, The United States will not be sending uh, the kind of military troops that some in Haiti um, have been requesting. The president of the United States says we are only sending American Marines to our embassy in Haiti. The idea of sending American forces to Haiti is not on the table, not on the agenda. Um, A couple of uh, pray the headlines or pray the news things for us to consider today. The numbers coming out of Western Europe um, related to rescue and recovery efforts in Germany, Belgium, Luxembourg, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, where rivers swelled and swept through towns yesterday, dragging entire structures away in the flow. Um, some 60 people uh, are already known to be dead. Another 1,500 or so are missing. Um, and so let's be raising up prayers there. Um, I'm sure we will have lots of stories coming out of that over the weekend as well. Uh, on this side of the pond, the opposite threat Uh, 71 large wildfires are now uh, burning across more than a million acres, mostly in the western United States. But smoke can be seen from California all the way to 
New York and in New York City uh, today, a lot of people, millions of people, are under a heat advisory. The heat index or the feels like temperature there is going to reach 103 today. Uh, and so let's just be let's be praying for folks um, across the country and around the world, recognizing, you know, God is sovereign and He can do exceedingly far more than we sometimes dare to ask or imagine. So let's ask for relief um, in these situations. All right. Matt Hawkins joins me next. He and I are going to walk around in some recent research related to Christians here in the United States of America. Oh, and pagans as well. That one will be fun. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. everyone and welcome to Matthew Hawkins. He joins us nearly every Friday um, and he joins us again today. You can find him online at MatthewTHawkins.com or on Twitter at MTHawk. Matt, welcome back and how was the county fair? The county fair doesn't happen yet, Carmen. Oh, I saw your tickets. uh, I saw that you have your tickets. Maybe that's what I saw. I have the season ticket, which (laughs) is like, uh, it's like the golden ticket around here in Wilson County. Uh, I know. But it's not till like uh, I think like the twelfth of August or something. So we're very excited. <laughs> all right. Well, we all know what um, what Matt and his family will be doing in mid August. That's really fun. Um, county fairs are, in my view, just the best. I did see a list uh, yesterday posted on uh, what what new foods were going to be featured this year. New food yeah. trucks, new food at the Iowa State Fair, which is nice. you know notably a big fair across the United States. So yeah, um, yeah. A, a lot. Of, I would describe the um, the things listed. Two of them as really like much more healthy options than people are used to seeing in the past, and then one obscenely not healthy option. There you go. Yeah, that's yeah. it's exciting. Gen- and this year, Wilson County Fair has always been a, a top dog in the Tennessee fair world, <laughs> but this year they've actually combined with the Tennessee State Fair, which was significantly smaller, actually. And so now this year it's Tennessee's Wilson County Fair. Really? So, uh, y'all, y'all come over. Yeah, right. it's, it's going to be a big deal. There we go. Um, all right, so um, let's look at this research um, that that you and I have both read these articles. Mm-hmm. So this one is in Christianity Today at ChristianityToday.com. Ryan Burge is the researcher behind this and the author of the article. Mainline Protestants are still declining, but that's not good news for evangelicals. I think that in the past, um, yeah. folks have pointed to research and said, oh, you know, mainline Christianity is on the decline, and it's for these these theological reasons, but evangelical Christianity is uh, is on the decline as well. Yeah, yeah, and and Ryan Burge, I'd encourage folks to follow follow him. He's a political scientist at Eastern Illinois University, and uh, uh, he writes for a, a site called Religion in Public. And I've uh, appreciated a lot of his insights. Um, so that continue to continue to be very helpful. Uh, look, Carmen, I'm an ecumenical mutt. I think you you may know this, Me but too. I was I'm a uh, methodist. Was... <laughs> there you go. I was sprinkled by uh, as a Presbyterian baby by parents who both grew up Methodist. Right, uh, I grew up in the Christian American Alliance uh, denomination, uh, which is where I came to faith, and then ultimately went to work and joined Southern Baptist for the past 20 years. So um, some of this data, right? I mean, I we see I see in my own in my own life and and family, right, uh, came out of the uh, mainline denominations, um, 
And for those who are unfamiliar with Christian Missionary Alliance, it's kind of a Baptist-Presbyterian hybrid uh, is what we call it. Uh, Southern Baptists found me Baptist-compatible when I went to, went to join that space. Um, uh, there, I have lots of thoughts on this data, obviously, and, and I'm sure you do. Uh, I want to first you know, remind us that uh, the gospel will go forth with or without American churches and denominations. Um, but it's uh, something to grieve when we have data that suggests American churches aren't getting it done so to speak, right? And uh, I think that's kind of where we are. And like you mentioned, uh, evangelicals had kind of, um, we've been experiencing more of a reprieve over the last few decades relative to the mainline denominations uh, who were trending downward significantly. And you're right, we uh, probably gloated a little too much because we were uh, looking at liberal uh, liberal theology and, and pointing to that as the as a reason why people were fleeing and and joining uh, evangelical churches. Um, but it appears, I, I think this data suggests, that evangelical churches, I, I count my churches among them, basically kind of there's a lot of overlap between evangelicalism and baptism or Baptist churches. Um, we may have been kind of grifting off of former mainline members instead of making disciples of our own uh, from uh, outside the Christian faith. Uh, and I think that, um, is catching up with us now. And, uh, you know, I remember those trends and, you know, it was kind of the death of liberalism, quote unquote. Uh, and I think that, I think there's still truth to that. Um, but, uh, because we were, we were looking at, uh, conser- what apparently were theologically conservative churches that were still either growing or at least not, um, not hemorrhaging as many, uh, people as mainline denominations were. Uh, but it looks like that's, that was probably, premature for us to be totally confident in that. Um, conservative theology uh, in churches can make errors too with respect to um, making disciples or not making disciples, right? Uh, and I think for my own current tradition, um, he's got a paragraph, Ryan has a paragraph in that report that says only half of kids raised in the Southern Baptist tradition, the biggest Protestant denomination in the U.S., stay Southern Baptist as adults. Uh, Carmen, that's, that's a problem, not just with evangelism and baptisms, right? There's something else going on there. Um, when the kids raised in the tradition are, are not leaving. Um, and so I think, you know, look, I'm, I'm a denominational kind of guy. I, I value these institutions, um, for a number of different reasons. Um, but this kind of change happens at the local church level. And so I think if we don't give folks, if we're not winning folks to being uh, disciples of Christ, and that includes being uh, you know, healthy, participatory members of local churches, I think you, this is where you get data yeah, then. Um, that's where the data leads. I don't want to, yeah, that's where the yeah. data leads. And I, I don't want to needlessly pick on... <laughs> On uh, on Gary Chapman, but for those of you who were listening on, on on the spot just before this this segment, um, the lingo in there he mentioned something about attending church, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it had nothing to do with that uh, this subject matter, but uh, attending church versus being members of churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, in recent years there's a small renaissance in kind of church membership uh, talk and understanding, but that's really a, a bigger deal um, than I think. Um, that I think we've uh, really paid attention to. And I think a lot of this hemorrhaging comes out of people attending church, quote unquote, and not being members of churches. And so that's that's where I would encourage people to lean in. Yeah, and that's that I think 
part of um, seeking community or seeking a place where you feel like you have a sense of belonging, but where you haven't actually taken mm-hmm. the step of becoming a member uh, and investing yourself in the future, uh, in the in the fellowship, and then in the um, cultivation of the future of that particular body of people. Like you haven't actually said, I'm a member of this body. I'm really more like a... Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, a, you know, are you a part of the fabric or are you, you know, like the dryer sheet that's just, you know, sort of hanging on? Right. <clears throat> All right. Um, so I remember right. conversations with lots of folks coming out of mainline uh, denominations over the last, yeah. well, more than a decade. And I actually like remember, I can like, I can see Jeff Jeremiah, the former uh, stated clerk of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church at his General Assembly. Like, I can see him. I can hear him talking about um, whether or not they were going to rely on or count on transfer growth. Because at that point, you know, it was massive thousands uh, of people transferring from the PCUSA into the EPC. Are we going to continue counting on transfer growth or are we going to commit ourselves to transformational growth? You know, actually bringing people into yeah. a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I can remember um, the leadership of the uh, the ACNA um, when folks came out of the Episcopal Church USA and formed, um, you know, informed the Anglican communion here in North America. I mean, I can remember that event and I can remember... Um, them talking about, you know, are we going to just rely on, you know, people coming out of the EPC or out of the Episcopal Church and forming Anglican churches, or are we going to set ourselves intentionally toward the cultivation of new Christians? And um, yeah. and they planted 10,000 churches in 10 years. Like, it's not... Yeah. It's not that former mainline people aren't focused evangelically um, on their right. own communities. It's that they don't necessarily get count it like where do you count an anglican and where do you count a presbyterian who happens to be evangelical does that get counted in evangelical numbers does that get counted in mainline protestant numbers it probably depends who you're asking and um, and with whom you're talking all right we got to take a brief break when we come back matt Matt hawkins and i are going to talk about a whole nother look at um religion in america and this is a conversation about the rise of paganism active spiritual communities of pagans. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Matt Hawkins. Um, Matt, here's a headline for you. Uh, It's on Religion News. Uh, The headline reads, Paganism, gods and goddesses aside, is the most LGBTQ-affirming faith in the U.S., some pagans say more visibility for trans and gay members of a largely white, mostly heterosexual community is needed. Let me just tell you, that headline gives us lots yeah. of fodder for conversation. Oh, my goodness, does it? <laughs> um yeah, so I mean, this obviously dovetails right with the conversation we were just having. Uh, Ryan Burge's uh, column says, uh, look, uh, he says, uh, quote, religious demography is a zero-sum game. If one group grows larger, that means other groups must be shrinking in size. Uh, now, we need to be careful about uh, translating that into kind of a, a threat or fear. Um, but it does speak to uh, kind of the, the fact that uh, when people leave a particular faith, Christianity or otherwise, or they just stop being part of a, an identifiable institutional representation of faith, uh, they don't just stop believing and live some kind of of, uh, you know, 
a religious life, right? They go believe something else, right? Um, and that might be that might be an, an apparent uh, secularism, but it's basically materialism, right? Um, or they go to someplace like uh, like paganism, and so you have a situation where paganism, um, and uh, which uh, has you know, been a part of American history for a long time, but a pretty, pretty slim minority uh, is developing a relationship or a reputation rather uh, for being super friendly uh, with LGBTQ rights, um, which um, I think probably for me and probably for you is not that uh, not sur- not that surprising necessarily, right? Um, it's I'm no, no expert on on pagan. Uh, 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 belief or uh, doctrine, uh, but it does seem to be a fairly loosey-goosey um, kind of uh, assembly of faith traditions, right? Um, that uh, they can kind of morph and flex with uh, a lot of the cultural stuff around them uh, without uh, breaching uh, significantly, you know, historically held doctrines like you can with uh, with Christianity. And uh, you know, they're they're going to be comfortable. They're you know, pagans are going to be. Uh, um, like this one of this uh, David Salisbury, a pagan author and a LGBTQ a- advocate, says, quote, pagans have always been seen as outliers and oddballs, um, which he says accounts for the level of empathy expressed, which is an interesting, interesting thing. And I think we can kind of l- learn from that a little bit. Um, I, you know, when, when your faith tradition is, um, already seen as oddballs, right. Uh, and outliers and, uh, kind of marginal, um, you're probably a little more ready to see and kind of to empathize with other peoples who also feel themselves as outliers and oddballs. Right. I think and that, I think, yeah. I think, I think, no, there's no question about that. I think so is what you're talking about, what you're pointing to and what, um, I think the the question that maybe it provokes, um, what is, because as soon as you say oddball or outcast mm-hmm. or on the margins, mm-hmm. then you are defining something as over and against that which is normal or normalized in a particular right. culture or cult- cultural experience. And I think what we want our listeners to hear and understand is that paganism is absolutely being normalized and is a normalizing yeah. influence in the United States of America today. The fact that religiously unaffiliated Americans and pagans are considered um, distinctive religious groups. Like that is a religious affiliation in this PRRI, this public religion uh, in America poll. Like the fact that religiously unaffiliated Americans are counted as a religious affiliation and pagans are identified specifically as a religious group, right? Like that that is informative to us. That has not been, I mean, yeah. if you went back 40, 50 years, um, we're not looking at religiously unaffiliated Americans as a religious group. And we're not looking at pagans as a s- significant right. identifiable subset um, of, yeah. uh, of religion in America. That has changed. And I think people need to be um, absolutely aware of it. All right. You and I are out of time. Not surprisingly, I did want to talk to you about public school lunch, but we're going to have to wait on that. That's all right. That's okay. All right. Matthew Hawkins, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Matt is the former policy director for the ethics and religious liberty commission of the Southern Baptist convention. He is a public theologian. You can follow him online. His website is matthewthawkins.com. Matt, thanks so much. Happy Friday. Have a great weekend, Carmen. You too. See you at the fair. Yeah. 
All right, uh, we're going to take a break for Knowing God with Greg Laurie. All right, so I'm actually in studio today, which means I'm looking through the plexiglass at Nat Becker. Good morning. Good morning. So I have a question for you, Nat. Yeah. So if we, if I were to come over to um, to your house with your family, so like yep. your whole the, the whole mob, all right, and we were to play a game, what game would your family most often choose to play together? What game would they most often? Uh, actually, they really like board games, so right. they rotate fairly frequently. Through. Right now, they're really big into this game about growing trees and kind of fighting for your forest's um, ability to find sunlight and not get shaded by other trees. Okay, what would the name of this game be? Honestly, oh, I don't, don't know. We don't know. All right, so we're going to need a little help us out. If you know the game that Nat is talking about, go ahead and text us, 877-933-2484. Here's why I bring this up. Because apparently um, everybody, pretty much everybody, has their own house rules related to games that we play. Oh, like, yeah. I didn't I didn't know that, like, some people, when they play Uno, which I realize is not, like, a hugely strategic game, um, <laughs> But, like, there's two different ways to play it in terms yeah. of drawing cards. One oh. people will say you only have to draw one card. Other people will say you have to draw cards until you can play. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So uh, then, we've always played until you can play. Right, right. <laughs> so we have, right, but you end up with a lot of cards that way. Mm-hmm. And if you're, right, so um, so if you have maybe somebody in your family that can't hold a lot of cards in their hand, apparently you adapt to the needs of the, uh, of the person, right, right? Because you yeah, don't want anybody yeah. to have so many cards that they can't, right. like, physically hold them. Um, and then, so anyway, so house rules related to things, like the number of um, dominoes that you take when you're going to play Mexican train. Mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. know? Do you, I mean, you know, in um, your house, would that be 15 dominoes? Would it be 18? Would you ever play Mexican train? I've played Chicken it a handful foot? of times. Yeah. Hand and foot? I don't usually end up playing dominoes, so yeah, someone I- tells me how many I need to draw <laughs> when we play. <laughs> All right, and then, um, and then, like the version of Scrabble where you're not really playing Scrabble, it's like Bananagrams, oh, where yeah. you're like, okay. So, how about in that? Do uh, you- that one has to be heavily modified because there's a lot of word people in my family, and mm-hmm. I'm not a word person, mm-hmm. so there end up being lots of handicaps and mm-hmm, exactly modifications and, yeah, for Nat. Exactly. Yeah. yeah so house they're, rules are made for me. House rules. We're going to talk with Dan Dewitt from Cedarville University. He has a couple of posts right now on the Weekend Worldview Reader. Guess what they're called? House rules. House rules one. House rules two. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. If you're raising a teenager, then here's the first thing you can take to the bank. Teenagers will act like teenagers during their teenage years. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Your kids will make mistakes. They'll lie, they'll mistreat people, they'll stumble. But just because they mess up from time to time doesn't mean we bail them out of their consequences. The second thing you can count on is this. What you've taught your kids is paramount. The seeds you've sown in their lives will one day come to fruition. And third, mom and dad, you need to trust God's involvement in your kid's life. He wants good things for your team, and he'll never abandon you or your kids. Take those three things to the bank and cash them in. Someday, your team will thank you. Mark Gregston has more helpful resources for you at parentingtodaysteens.org. All right, Dan DeWitt 
is with us again. You can read what we're talking about today at theolatte.com. Check out this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. Dan, I loved, I feel like it was two summers ago, the Route 66 Journey Through the Bible um, series that you and your boys um, lived and then shared with the rest of us. This this summer, um, you've got a little series going on house rules. So tell us about house rules. Well, I love the setup, you and Nat's discussion about house rules related to games. And the, the metaphor does apply to houses of faith. You know, every church has its own particular way of interpreting certain doctrines. And so what I wanted to do was take a metaphor of the house that C.S. Lewis used with mere Christianity and talk about how that might apply to the way we're thinking about what we believe and how we interact with people who differ from us, whether they're Christians or non-Christians. So Lewis talked about a hallway, um, and that Lewis's goal was to get people into the hallway of the house. And the way he defined the hallway, he called it mere Christianity— basic Christian beliefs, what it means to be a Christian. So in one of my posts, I talk about that hallway. These are not the kind of distinctions that divide churches. They're what it means simply to follow Jesus. But Lewis argued that you can't live in the hallway, that you have to choose a room, that you have to choose um, a room in terms of having fellowship and food and a fire. All that takes place in a room, not in the hallway. So my second post is about, well, once you've chosen a room, a church, a denomination, what are some of the rules that apply there? And sometimes we confuse the hallway for the room. Sometimes we want to put a, hall, a room in the hallway. Other times, what should be happening in the room, we take even beyond the hallway and we put it in the front yard for everybody to see. And I think that's inappropriate too. So that's the nature of these two posts, thinking about what Christians believe, what unites us, what divides us, and then what's inappropriate to even take out into the front yard where people who don't even believe in Jesus are seeing our dirty laundry. See, Nat loved when you said, how does this apply to houses of worship? And he went, oh, yeah. So there you go. It was a really good intellectual hook. Thank you for um, <laughs> thank you for making that for us. All right. So that series is House Rules. You can find that at this week's Weekend Worldview Reader on Theolatte.com. You, um, you teed up a conversation um, on this Karen Swallow prior piece that appeared in the Religion News Service and then was um, also carried in the Washington Post. Karen says, don't believe in systemic race. Well, this is the headline. She probably didn't write the headline. Don't believe yeah. in systemic racism. Let's talk about the sexual revolution. What is Karen talking about in this piece? And why do you think we should be reading it um, as a part of this week's Weekend Worldview Reader? Well, what Karen is trying to do, I think, is to enter into a space that's really contested. So this has become a topic that um, Christians are really passionate about or they're running from because they feel like it's just too charged right now, and it's hard to have a meaningful, rational conversation. And Karen's trying to set some kind of boundaries for what we mean by these different terms. Um, I think sometimes people, when they use a term like systemic racism, that sometimes there's a um, complete separation from an academic, perhaps, definition of it, that people would have a very technical way of what they're talking about. And then also just a the lived experience. And so Karen asked the question, do you deny systemic racism? Well, do you not think that there are systemic effects of other things, like the sexual revolution, for example? And so we live in a world where policies, 
marketing, where cultural artifacts are all influenced by um, the sexual revolution. And so she points to Time Magazine and other articles. And goodness, this is one of those topics you don't really have to be, you know, you don't have to have a ton of research to demonstrate, yes, we live in a sexually charged culture. It's everywhere you go. And she said in the same way, the issues like racism seep into our culture. They affect policies. They affect our cultural artifacts. And to deny that would be as as non-rational as denying that the world's view of sex has affected everything around us. And so she's making this point and hoping to influence Christians to be more empathetic and to care about the way that racism affects our brothers and sisters around the world. Yeah, that was an excellent, um, excellent piece. Um, let's talk about uh, a, a piece that is in the um, Miami New Times, and it, it is uh, some reflections on what is going on um, in Surfside, Florida, and actually in the wider community there. Um, I, I don't think that it would surprise anyone, right, that there are lots of conversations underway about where is God? Where was God? Um, you know, is this God's responsibility? Um, what might God have done? Why didn't God prevent this? On and on and on. Talk with us about some of the God conversations that are provoked when something absolutely unthinkable happens. Yeah, I think I think this is this is the most pressing apologetic question, and so I don't think it's. Um, insurmountable from an intellectual standpoint. I think that there's actually really good um, intellectual arguments for it. And also, I think that there's really straightforward biblical answers. I mean, we live in a Genesis 3 world, and you could look at all the effects of the curse of sin in Genesis 3 and just say the things we're seeing in terms of natural evil and then also moral evil when humans are involved are what we should expect to see if we live in a Genesis 3 world. So it doesn't contradict the Bible. But the challenge is, usually when people ask that question, it's not an intellectual question. It's a deeply personal question. And so often what Christians do is they charge in with kind of intellectual answers when we miss the mark. Someone you know really just wants to be heard and cared for. And in time, they can consider the intellectual responses. So where is God when tragedy happens? Um, the, the reality, and Carmen, I was asked this question years ago. I was speaking at a uh, youth workers training event in uh, in Georgia, and I had a, a gentleman raise his hand and say, why does God allow suffering? And what was in, intriguing about him asking that question is he had th- third-degree burns over every part of his body that I could see, that clothing wasn't over. Um, and so this was a deeply personal question. The answer to this is, we don't know why God allowed it to happen. We know that God is in control of all things. So Christians can't deny that on the one hand. If you deny that God's in control of everything, you've really moved away from a biblical depiction of God. Um, on the other hand, we know that God cares deeply for us. And so somewhere we we know that God has a higher purpose, and we trust that. And so I think that that's what Christians mean when we say things like, God did this for his glory— I think that ultimately we mean something like, I don't really know why God did this or allowed this to happen, but we know that he's good and he will work it all together for good, and I'm trusting that. So I think there are good answers to this. I just think that usually when people ask the question, they're not looking for a systemic or a systematic theology. 
response. They're looking for someone to be there and be with them. And it's and it's long term. I mean, one yeah. of the observations that's made um, in this in this piece in the Miami New Times, and again, the piece is looking for God after Surfside collapsed. Joshua mm-hmm. Sabalas is the um, is the author. I highly recommend this article, um, not just because he does a good job interviewing people who are serving as chaplains on the scene. He does a good job acknowledging that grief persists after the news media turns its attention to something else, mm-hmm. and I think that the um, the witness. The witness to the enduring power of um, faith communities in the midst of a community that is experiencing something horrific and tragic. Um, There is testimony in this piece from people who acknowledge that um, some of their uh, some of their friends in their church are exhausted um, part of that is pandemic driven. Part of it's also that, you know, you, it's clear you don't have a living faith if what has kept you in church is some interest of your own or some sense that God's doing things for you versus, I mean, the language in here about how it's supposed to be, you know, parents aren't or children aren't supposed to predecease their parents. Buildings are not supposed to fall. And, you know, of course, I find myself, you know, acknowledging that it, we were what? We were in the very first generation of procreation when a child predeceased his parents. I mean, like, this is literally as old as the story of the fall. Um, This Mm. is literally a story as old as the fall of the Tower of Babel. Like, for those of us who are operating out of a biblical worldview, we actually have evidence that these kinds of horrible things do happen on this side of the fall in the reality of a sinful world. Um, you know, I, I would tee up the story of Lot, if it were appropriate, who lost mm. every one of his children and grandchildren in, in a house collapse. Um, but as you say, those stories are not necessarily, you can't tee those stories up for conversation in the midst of, right, in the moment, um, mm-hmm. in the immediate aftermath. But we should be prepared to have those conversations with others going forward. That's absolutely right. And, you know, if the Bible is true, and I believe it is, we not only have a category for when things like this happen, when evil things happen, we have even better. We have a remedy, which is the gospel, that God suffered indeed on our behalf, that we might have hope. That doesn't make everything easy, but it's something that we could point ourselves to and point our friends to and point an unbelieving world to, that there is an answer to this, and the answer is that God himself suffered, that we might know life. Yeah, exactly. All right, Dan DeWitt and I are going to uh, continue our conversation in just a moment. We're going to talk about the state of American friendship. That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Dan DeWitt, you can read what we are talking about today at this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. You will find it at theolatte.com. Dot com. Um, Dan, you've got a couple of pieces highlighted here in the article section about friendship. Let's talk about uh, the state of American friendship. I'm looking here at a Daniel Cox piece, the American Survey um, Center, Change, Challenges, and Loss Related to Friendship in America. What's going on? Well, um, first of all, I just have to say, I think Nat really missed a golden opportunity to play Michael W. Smith's Friends Are Friends Forever. <laughs> Ooh, I we did miss sing that it. golden. We could sing it. I'm swaying yeah. right now. I'm well, swaying. I'm thinking of I Love Lucy when they sang friendship, friendship. Anyway, so, um, yeah, the Survey Center on American Life highlights changes within Americans in terms of 
how they feel about their friendships. And so they point out that most Americans, and I'm quoting here, most Americans report having faced significant personal challenges. Um, they talk about how difficult it's been. And then in it, they have charts about where people are in terms of their friendships, how many have lost touch with their friends, how many have lost touch with a few friends. So for example, men who are 18 to 29, 43% say during the pandemic, they lost touch with a few friends. 46% of them um, say though they remained in regular contact. So this this story is, is chronicling how the pandemic has affected our friendships. And then also I have a link to a David French piece just on the nature of friendships in general, why it matters so much to us. A lot of us are coming out from behind our mask. We're trying to reconnect, but there's anxiety. I don't know if you've experienced that, the anxiety of like, I'm in a crowd now. How do we reconnect with people? And it's so important that we do. Um, and we're going to only suffer the, the adverse effects of it if we don't find ways to make sure we're prioritizing friendships. So now that you have me thinking about Michael W. Smith, um, I, I think that I'm probably significantly older than you, Dan, but I remember um, when Michael W. Smith recorded um, his worship album 20 years ago and songs like Heart of Worship or Draw Me Close, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Open the Eyes of My Heart. Um, those were all brand new worship songs. Awesome God. Those were all literally brand new. We'd never heard them before. Worship songs on Michael W. Smith's um, worship album in the year 2001, I think. And so um, just this past Monday night, uh, he re-recorded the entire album with a symphony um, and a live audience in Nashville. Um, and and everybody that participated the first time around, well, everybody that is still alive, some of them are not. I mean, Rich Mullins. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but um, but they re-recorded it. And so just in terms of like wow. mu music fans out there who, um, you know, just might be excited to know, um, it's called Reimagine. I think it's called Reimagine. It's uh, Reimagine number one. It, it, it's a full symphony orchestra version of Michael W. Smith's worship album from 20 years ago. It's it's kind of cool, kind of a cool thing, right? That makes me want to go back to church camp. Right, right. <laughs> I, I figure it probably was kind of a, a church camp experience for people who uh, were in the were in the audience for that um, live recording. Yeah, it's, you know, people are out there doing cool stuff, and I like to talk about it. Um, all right, what else we got here? Okay, so um, I will tell you that um, of the Ortlands, Gavin might be least familiar to me. You have teed up um, a book by Gavin Ortland in terms of uh, things we might be reading this weekend, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. Yeah, so related to my post about house rules, you know, how do we understand what is the, is mere Christianity, you know, and then what, why is it important to move beyond mere Christianity and affiliate with a particular local church? Related to that is this idea of how do we understand what are of utmost importance in terms of theological beliefs, and then what are things that Christians can disagree on, but still recognize we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Gavin's book helps really talk about that. So the term theological triage, I think, was first developed by Albert Moeller at Southern Seminary. And what he's doing is saying, what are things that are essential for Christian belief? What are things we could disagree on and probably will land us in different churches? But then also, what are those kind of like, for example, baptism, Presbyterians and Baptists, 
can love each other and respect each other, but they worship in different churches because of their view on baptism. But what are those things that we can be in the same church and disagree on? So really helpful stuff. I always am reminded of and think about a quote from a student of Martin Luther, um, the reformer, who said in, in essential things, unity, in non-essential things, liberty, but in all things, charity. And Gavin Ortland, I think, models that spirit in the way he writes about this issue. So I also have a video of Gavin talking about this book in the Weekend Worldview Reader. All right, Dan DeWitt, as always, um, thank you so much for joining us. You guys can find the Weekend Worldview Reader at theolatte.com. Dan, uh, we'll talk with you soon. Thanks, Carmen. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You too. We'll be right back. All right. uh, Our ever-faithful listeners have come through. Um, You guys have sent me the information related to the game photosynthesis. All right. That's totally it. It's it's totally it. I know. I've put it in my basket. I haven't committed to buying it yet, but um, I'm going to do a little more research on that. Um, Thank you. So uh, for each of you that have texted in this morning, the text line is always open during the show, 877-933-2484. For those of you um, who uh, um, don't have anything to do today and tomorrow, tonight and tomorrow, Right, join us at the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference. Check it out at northwesternchristianwriterscomference.com. Um, you can still join us online, and um, we'd love for you to do that. So, Susie Larson is actually going to be like emceeing the whole thing. I'm just doing a workshop, but uh, I'm around, and Faith Radio has a booth or a table of some sort where, um, yeah, we'd love to, you know, do a little meetup. So, there you go. That's what's happening today and tomorrow. Let's lift up prayers for those who join us um, here on the show. Sometimes people have things going on in their personal lives and in their families, and I know that when they're um, talking with us and they're bringing it, they've they got a ton of stuff going on in the background. A lot of us uh, live like that, right? There's always something going on in the background. So let's be sure as we're listening um, to folks and they're sharing with us or we're reading what folks are writing, let's just lift up a prayer for them recognizing that God is sovereign and gracious and ask him to tend to the deepest needs in everyone's lives. Going to lift up listener Mary right now. She texted in during the program to share that her adult daughter daughter has become a witch. And um, that's in relationship to that paganism conversation that we had. So let's be lifting one another up in prayer this morning. You're listening. Others are listening as well. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.